Today we're talking about a light topic, obeying the government. Should be pretty easy. Uh, we'll just breeze through that and uh, head home. I don't know if this snow is a government conspiracy to try to keep people from hearing this message, uh, but we'll, we'll find out. Romans 13, chapter 1, gives us a simple and yet loaded command. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Translate this into 2019 language. Obey Donald Trump. Now these are words that even five years ago, we wouldn't even imagine that would ever be coming out of our mouth. But he doesn't offer any qualifications here. No exceptions. Simply commands, subject yourself, put yourself under, obey, submit to, that's what the word means, to the governing authorities. Presidents, kings, czars, governors, mayors, chiefs. But let's do a little time travel here because I want us to feel some of the tension in this simple command that he gives. Go back 90 years ago, put yourself in the shoes of a German Christian during the time of Nazi Germany's reign. And you're opposed to the killing of, of, of many innocent people, yet by law these people are being exterminated. And if you aid those who are marked for death, you yourself will experience death. So what do you do? Or you're a German soldier who's being told to do the exterminating. What do you do? Exterminating. Fast forward 30 years into communist Russia. Step into the shoes of a, of a Russian Christian. Uh, Bibles are banned from your land. And you're a trusted official in your company. And you're, you're expected to support the communist cause. If you don't, it'll mean your life, in, in, uh, in, your life or imprisonment. And a contact inside of Russia, they tell you you're the channel to get Bibles into the country. Do you agree and disobey civil authority? Do you say no? Do, do you say no and turn in that contact to the authorities? What do you do? Or, or rewind 2,000 years ago to, to Rome-ruled Judea, 30 AD, where you put yourself in the shoes of a Jesus follower who's telling other people about Jesus. And, and, and along comes the Jewish council high priest, your governing authority, and he tells you to shut your mouth and to stop telling people about Jesus. What do you do? Paul here he says in Romans 13, be subject, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What about these scenarios? Acts chapter 5, we just read this. Paul, Paul's buddy Peter and, and, and his disciples, they go, we must obey God rather than man. So how do we reconcile these two concepts? You say, whoa, 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 is, is the Bible contradicting itself? So the question before us this morning is to obey or not to obey. Right? That, that, is, that is the question. And this is a huge text. John Piper had this to say about Romans 13. He said, this text has implications for war and peace, dictators and totalitarianism, concentration camps and gulags, revolts and revolutions, laws and law enforcement, political activism and civil disobedience, elections and lobbying, voting and paying taxes, speed limits and seatbelts, stop signs and baby seats. This is not a small text. That is one of those mountain peaks of the book of Romans that makes a reader dizzy with implications. So buckle up. The context here, you remember Paul is writing this book of Romans. Uh, and in, in about 49 AD, according to Acts chapter 18, Emperor Claudius had removed the Jews, kicked the Jewish uh, uh, individuals out of, of Rome. Now, we don't know why and, and how many of them or how widespread that was. But what we do know is that the Jewish people had a history of revolting against the Roman government which is sort of ironic because the reason that the Roman government was put there in the first place over them was because of their revolting against their true king, God, and their disobedience to his law. 
And we see a history of insurrection. We're trying to overthrow, uh, revolt against the Roman government. And ultimately that leads to their fall in AD 70. That's why Jerusalem is laid, laid waste and thousands and thousands of, of Jewish people are, are killed to stop the constant revolting. So the Jewish Christians that, that Paul is writing to, they've re- just returned about five years after they've been kicked out of Rome. And you can imagine they got a little chip on their shoulder against the Roman government. And I imagine the Roman Christians who are receiving the Jewish Christian back are like, don't get us in trouble, you little rebels, right? I mean, unity is never easy in the church. And now Paul is writing to these believers and he's telling them to obey the Roman government and pay taxes to them. This would not be an easy word for them to receive. And Paul knows that Rome is leery of another Jewish revolt. He tells the believers, don't do it, submit. So he writes these words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Obey authority, full stop. Now the question here is why? Why do we do that? And and Paul gives us four reasons following this command why we are called to obey the government and some of the implications. So first of all, all authority is from God. All authority is from God. As a kid, I remember summers just being the best, right? No more school, no more books, no more teachers, dirty looks. I loved the trampoline. We lived on the trampoline, eating SpaghettiOs all day, bike rides. It was bliss. But then there was the, the dreaded babysitter, right? You remember that? Dreaded babysitter. Look at us just dreading Renee, our babysitter. Now, actually, she was one of our favorites. Uh, Janelle and I snuggled up reading a book with her. Uh, here's Jeremy. Uh, she had accidentally tried to shove both of his legs through one pant leg, and uh, that was the result. So uh, we had some weird, some incompetent babysitters. We had some good ones, some bad ones, some weird ones. But our parents wisely decided that while they were gone at work, we needed supervision, right? We needed help. We were not ready to raise ourselves just yet, right? That they needed someone there to keep the peace. So they delegated their authority to this babysitter. So so for us, to obey the babysitter was ultimately to obey who? Our parents. And, And to respect the babysitter, to honor the babysitter, was to respect and honor our parents who delegated the authority to the babysitter. Even if I had disagreed with our babysitter, what really mattered was what do mom and dad think and what will they say when they come home? Now, in this text, we're going to see today that God places every leader in authority in their place. Think about the implications of that. Whether it's a tribal chief who who takes his position by force, beats out the other guy. Or it's a king who who puts the crown on his son to succeed him, because that's how monarchies roll. Or, Or maybe it's a democracy where we voted in the person in office. He says, whatever it is, however they got there on a human level, ultimately, it was God who put them in their place. This is what he says in in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, here's the reason why. For, there's your connecting word. Why? For there is no authority. Listen to this language. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So he says the reason we obey the government is because ultimately the government was placed there by God. So to obey the government is to obey God. Or to say it negatively, he says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. So conversely, to disobey the government is to disobey God who put them into place and that's going to get you into trouble. So when we see this verse in context of the verse of, of the book of Romans... 
that we have, and in Romans chapter 12, we said we have surrendered our lives to God as living sacrifices, that we were purchased by Jesus' blood, that we belong to him now. And so in our spiritual act of worship, we say, God, I'm surrendering my life to you, and that I trust you. And because you are sovereign over my life, because you are sovereign over the entire world, because you are sovereign over human history, I can, you're a good God, a powerful God, and because I can trust you, I can trust and obey the American government. So the reason, the first reason he says that we obey is because we trust God and we obey God. And he's put the government into place. Reason number two. He says the government's there for our good. The government's there for our good. This babysitter was help, uh, there to help the, the Frankino kids from just rolling into utter chaos, right? From killing each other, from burning the house down. That's why he existed. As a substitute teacher, I've learned the lesson. If you turn your back on the children for even two seconds, it descends into complete anarchy, right? So the, the, the teacher knows they got to put a substitute in their place while they're gone from class or else they'll just be murder and all sorts of things. And, and so here's what he says in verse 3. The rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He says God has put these authorities in place for, for your good. Imagine for a second, even though we go, yeah, we know exceptions of, of bad leaders and evil leaders, but imagine a, for a second life without the substitute teacher, without the babysitter, without the civil government. There's an emergency in your life, and you call 911, and you get a dial tone. There's no police, no firemen, there would be no National Guard, no military, no laws. It would be chaos, right? It would be absolute chaos. The government brings law and order. Dun-dun, right? Um, when, when sin entered into the world, God saw the, the destruction and the violence it, it created, and so he sent human government as a response to this. Human government is God's response to restrain, hear me on this, restrain, not eliminate, of course, restrain evil in this world. When he looked around and he saw the devastation that sin caused into this world, what did he do? He sent a flood. Genesis 6, God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living things, for they have filled the earth with violence. I'm going to take them out. But then when they come back, he preserves a remnant through Noah to be faithful to the ultimate gospel in Jesus. He says to Noah afterward that I am instituting government to restrain, to restrain evil. Particularly, he he talks about capital punishment. Look at Genesis 9. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human life. For God made human beings in his own image. We're made in his image. He values life. And so he says, listen, to deter, to restrain evil, just know That if you kill somebody, I'm going to take your life. The human government, the state, will punish you in like kinds. So government here is to restrain evil, not to eliminate. Only Jesus can conquer sin and death. But he deters, it restrains. Now, you think about this. We read last week in Romans chapter 12, and we talked about the concept of revenge, just like this little guy wants. He said in Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, don't take revenge on people when they wrong you. But we could respond, but if we don't right the wrongs, if justice boy doesn't come flying in and solve the issue, then isn't the world just going to descend into chaos? Well, Romans chapter 13 is his response to that. 
He says, that's what God's put government there for. See, God's not saying if someone is abused, that there should be no consequence for that here on earth, even, even prior to his ultimate judgment seat. I want to be clear about that. That he, he, he observes and cares about justice even here and now. And, but he says, that's why I've instituted the state. There, there's, and, and, and parents and authority. There, there's, a, there's a chain of command. Chapter 12 is dealing with personal revenge. So, so if someone rubs, robs my house, I don't go Robin Hood on their hiney, right? I don't go equalizer one or two, right? I don't go vigilante, just kind of, I'm going to take matters into my, into my own hands. What do I do? I call the authorities. I trust, I trust God, and, and, and in that, I trust his way of handling these kind of situations. So we trust that God has put the government there for good. Number three, we do it to avoid punishment, to avoid punishment. It says in verse four, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, right? In other words, you're going to get your comeuppance, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So his, this motivation is an external one. It's simply we obey because we don't want to get in trouble, okay? So, so getting back to the, the babysitter, like I, I knew that if I didn't listen to what Renee was saying, ultimately when my parents get home, I'm going to have a tanned hide, right? I'm getting spanked. So I'm obeying them because I don't want to get in trouble with mom and dad. And so one of the reasons we obey the government is to avoid punishment, both from the government and ultimately the wrath of, of God. Like, I don't know about you, I don't want the wrath of God. Punishment from the government is ultimately from the hand of God. Now, I love making good time to Anchorage. Like, even if there's no deadline, like, I just have this weird thing in my head where it's like, I gotta get there under two and a half hours, right? Or at two and a half hours, right? Now, I, I know, like, I know, here, here's the deal, and I hate, ugh, I hate going through Cooper Landing, right, and the 35, 45 miles an hour drives me crazy, but here's the deal, I know, and I'm one of the cheapest people on the planet, so I know that if I speed through there, I, I very likely will get a speeding ticket, and I don't want to pay the, the fine, so I slow down. The law has deterred me, has, has slowed my roll. And, and, and here, he says, law promotes order. There's, there's a, an aspect in which punishment will deter us from doing the wrong thing. Again, not elimination, but, but deterrence, um, restraint. And so that's one of the reasons. But there's a deeper, a deeper reason here, number four, to avoid violating your conscience. He says in verse five, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says, a deeper reason than just not wanting to get spanked not wanting to get fined or put into prison, is that you know it's wrong. There's a violation of your conscience that you have sinned against your God when you disobey or dishonor. And this, this reminds us that God is ultimately the one that gets to define what is right and wrong, not, not government, not us. And so it's, it's not the government determining what's right and wrong, it's the government rewarding right and punishing wrong. Now, that's a generalization. And we know there are examples in human history today and in the past where the wrongs are not righted and, the, and the, the wrongs are not punished and the rewards are not righted. But generally speaking, the government's there to, to mitigate. And, and the government itself is subject to God's moral law, not vice versa. They don't decide. And, and this shows us that, that doing right is not simply defined by submitting to the government, right? There are plenty of law-abiding citizens that are still sinning against God. So there's a deeper issue here than just external obedience. It's an internal obedience of the heart, an obeying of our conscience. Now, he applies this to paying taxes as well. 
For because of this, you must also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. April 15th is coming up. It's a, it's a, it's a time to be talking about this. They, he says, the reason you pay your taxes is because ultimately they're servants of God. If, if, if God is the ultimate authority, then, then these people are working for him. And, and so we support them. Now, the Jewish people didn't want to pay taxes to oppressive Rome, right? You remember tax collectors in the day? Like, they were despised. They were put on a level with, with prostitutes and crooks. And they were. They were extorting all sorts of malevolence. But what God says is, trust me and pay your taxes, right? Even if you don't agree with the government. Even if you think that it's oppressive. It wasn't a perfect system in Rome. It's not a perfect system today. God is watching when we fill out our taxes. When I go on Tax Act online, God is there. And he sees you when you're cheating. He knows when you're a fake. He knows what you should itemize. I don't know. <laughs> um, now, generally speaking, the government punishes evil and it rewards good. But not always. There are exceptions to this rule. And just like a proverb, Paul is talking about the norm, Right? But there, but there are exceptions. So, so here's where we step into this, this kind of grayer area of, of what about civil disobedience? When is it right to disobey the government, if ever? As Clark, Paul is clearly commanding us here to submit to. So think about it this way, again, to, to the babysitter. When would it ever be okay for me to obey, disobey the babysitter? Right? Not that I ever did. Janelle and Jeremy all the time, but I was the good one. Um, the, the only... The only time that it'd be appropriate is if they, if the babysitter told me to do something that went against the wishes of my mother and father, right? Like if the babysitter said, no, it's cool, you could watch this rated R movie. Like I know mom and dad wouldn't let me watch that, so I'm still not going to watch it, right? Yeah, you can punch your brother, sweet, you know, like, here, smoke this, right? There, there are things that we know that my mom and dad wouldn't approve of, so that is the line. My parents are the ultimate authority, not the babysitter. So, so their word is final. And we see the same line drawn biblically. When, when a human law conflicts with, conflicts with God's law, we bow the knee to God, not to man. So there's some biblical examples of this. Uh, remember Daniel 6. Darius has imposed a, a law to not pray. Not only does Daniel disobey, he prays in front of the window, right? He goes, deal with that. How you like them apples? Or his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're told to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, nope, we're not going to do it, even if it means our lives. I love the story of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, where they're told to kill the Hebrew boys. And they not only disobey, they, only, they, they also lie about it. They go, oh man, like these moms are just popping these kids out. We can't get there fast enough. Like, what are you going to do, right? Disobedience. Acts chapter 5, the apostles are told, stop preaching the gospel and their response, Peter and his boys say, we must obey God rather than man. Now today, there are Christians around the world where this is not a theoretical question. Those in China, the Islamic states, North Korea, God says in, in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves as believers. But in North Korea, it's illegal to do so. So, so what does the Korean do? Who, who does he obey? Jesus said, follow me, I'm the king. I'm your ultimate authority. So some of these general guidelines here that we see from Scripture is we obey God when, two, two different scenarios, 
The law commands us to do something that God's word commands us not to do. So if the government says you must lie, you must murder, you must commit adultery, we say God says don't do that, and we don't do that. Or you go the other way, the law commands us not to do something that God's word clearly commands us to do. Preach the gospel, pray, gather together as believers. And so we do it even if the government says not to. We obey God, not man. But but those are the easy ones. What about the inevitable gray areas where it's not an explicit command necessarily to do or not do in the Bible? When do I obey? When do I protest? When do I dissent? When do I comply? And there are no easy answers to this. But a couple of questions for us to ask ourselves as believers. Um, is my action, if I'm going to civilly disobey, is my action motivated by selfishness and fear? Am I doing this for myself? Or is it motivated out of love and mercy for other people? And I, and I look at the situation and I ask myself, how many people are being affected by this, by this rule that, that seems to go against God's heart? Or, or how serious, how grievous is the problem? And how does it affect the spread of the gospel? How central is it to, to what we're called to be about as believers? So, like, if I think that driving 45 miles an hour down these eight lanes of highway in Sterling is dumb, which I do, am I just going is to, that, is that a place to protest? Is that a place to just disobey and do whatever I want? No, it's selfish. It's petty, Right? But, but what about, and, and, and you know, John Piper gave a few examples, and these are extreme, but it just kind of gets our minds thinking about this tension here. Um, would, would, would it be okay to jaywalk across the street if I saw somebody being attacked and they need help? What about speeding to get my dying wife to the hospital? What about breaking into a neighbor's house, walking on a private property, because their house is burning down and you're there to rescue their child. Now, of course, those are extreme examples, but no, no policeman is going to fault you for doing that. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, I think, is one of the best examples we have of this. As you answer some of the questions we saw in that cloud, this was grievous, this was widespread, where minorities were not being treated like human beings. And this protest was done in a peaceful, loving way. There was passion in there, but it was nonviolent. Was it perfect? Of course not. There were sinners involved, but it was done for the sake of others, not out of selfishness. So we take a look at, at where we're at today. Uh, to me, one of the most applicable um, areas of this, one of the most egregious legal issues of our day is the legalization of abortion. And of course, legalizing something is different than mandating it. We're not being told you, you must abort a child but we're legalizing it, and, there's, and I feel like there's not a lot of tension here in our need to advocate for the murder of any human being, born or unborn, for the oppressed and the voiceless. That's not a difficult one for me to see biblically, but how, how do we engage in something like this biblically? Well, what are our options? And, and today, we live in a country where we got more options than most people do today, and in human history for sure. We can vote we can assemble, we can speak, we can, we can, we can protest peaceably. Uh, one thing to throw out um, this Saturday, um, and kind of a response to the legalization of full-term abortion in New York, there's been sort of a movement gathering called the Day of Mourning, and on Saturday the 23rd, um, people will be called, it started in New York, but it's moving nationwide, a call to wear black that day, 
a call to, in kind of response to the taxation, you know, being used for these kind of things, um, to, for business owners to shut down their business, to not shop if you are um, on the other end of that, um, and, and for prayer and repentance of, of where we're at on this issue. Now, as a family, as an individual, that's a time for us to decide, is this, is this a biblical way to respond? Is this a time to, to dissent, uh, to, to protest? But we may not, scripture is clear, or never to use physical force in that sense, to, to attack, to, to, to use hateful speech or an attitude. John Piper said it this way, you and I, we are forgiven sinners. We are people of the cross. And that ought to bring us to a place of humility and not arrogance. There should never be a swagger in our protest. That Romans 12, are we called to hate what God hates? Absolutely. But we should never have, our attitude should be an attitude of prayer and trust in the one who controls the government, our ultimate authority. So even when we do decide to civilly disobey, we're still called to do it in a biblical, loving manner. So some application points here, because I know that the tension can be thick. First of all, obey the law. Obey the law. I don't think this is the hardest one for us. By and large, we're law-abiding citizens in here. But there's a couple of areas that we can, of course, press into. You know, one of the things for me uh, a while back was, was the idea of, of illegal downloading okay, in this digital world we live in. And was kind of convicted of, of movies and music that I was downloading that I was not paying for. And that the, the reasons behind that was, were cheap and selfish. And that, that was disobedience toward, toward ultimately toward, toward the government and my God. And, and maybe for you, it's, it's in the fishing game world, right? We're in Alaska. And your hunting or your fishing license or the amount of, of that animal that you're taking home, right? Or, or maybe it, it is an issue of obeying the speed limit or, or you know, cutting corners on building codes or, or taxes as we fill those out this time of year. We are called to obey the law that does not contradict God's law in an ultimate expression of trust and honor and obedience to God. But there's a step deeper, and I think probably where more of us live, is honoring authority in our hearts. This is a tougher one, I, I know for me. Uh, verse 7, I, I didn't read you the very end of the verse. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenues, revenue is owed. Then he says, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And again, this is in the context of the government. First Peter, talking about the same subject, says it this way. Fear God, ultimately, and respect the king. Honor the king. So what's our attitude? What's our, what's our tongue? What are we saying? It's never right, never right for a Christian to speak in a disrespectful way about another. And that includes an officer of the state. Can we disagree? Absolutely. Do you have to vote for them? Of course not. That we're called, again, in Romans 12, to, to hate what God hates. And cling to what is good. But to hate is never against a person. It's sin. So what's your water cooler talk at work like about President Trump? And I know we're sitting in a room primarily of Republicans. So maybe rewind the clock a little bit and what was it like about Obama? Or we got a lot of things going on today with Dunleavy and, and the issues of, you know, rolling, you know, all the budget cuts and all, always hot button issues, Right? But what is our attitude in this? Are we joining in? In, in? in the hateful speech, in the disrespectful speech, in the sarcasm, in, in the jokes that are not appropriate? I think we have a severe lack of, of uh, respect for our authority in our culture today. Parents, teachers, bosses, politicians. 
And ultimately, we're spitting in the face of our maker and disrespecting the very person of God when we do that. And it also reveals what we most trust and treasure and worship. Am I most concerned about my rights? Most concerned about my life going my way, my comforts, my peace? Or am I most concerned about God's perfect plan for my life to make me more like Jesus and the spread of the gospel? And a lot of times, my growth is, is through unfair treatment by others. <laughs> I see even believers who get more riled up about politics than the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And something's got to change. Something's got to change. Ooh, it's quiet in here. Third one. Major on the majors. Major on the majors. I want to go on record just to say this. I am grateful to be an American citizen in case you're not hearing that in what I'm saying today. I think democracy is a brilliant form of government. I think it's one of, if not the best, responses to a government for us as sinners. Our freedoms and our rights are something that I'm thankful for and, and honestly do take for granted much of the time, but I'm thankful for them. But my first allegiance is not to America. It's not to a country not to a flag, it's to a king and a kingdom. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Christ means Messiah, it means king. He's my king. Now this king has, has put on earth earthly kings for me to obey right now, ultimately showing that I trust and I obey him. But this king has left me with a central task. The most important thing in my life is to go and make disciples. And I do that by preaching the gospel and by loving other people. That's what's central. Listen, does, are there things that need to change in our country? Absolutely. But the way we're going to change that is not primarily through laws, it's through hearts. We're not primarily to be concerned and, and spending majority of our time thinking about how to make laws, but how to make disciples. Not arguing about politics by pointing people to Jesus. And that's me, first and foremost, that needs him. Our most important, urgent task is to save sinners, to bring the dead to life. And listen, that's how change will occur. Now, can we get involved as Christians in politics? Absolutely. And some people are called into that as professions, professionals. But to see ultimate change, it's Jesus, not Congress. That's where we put our trust. Not in chariots and horses. Ultimately, taking us back, it's a trust issue. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And this is a trust issue. Ultimately, like everything else, this is a trust issue. God says, I've got a plan. I've got this thing. Do you trust me? Do I believe my God is big enough? Remember when Pilate said to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power to have you crucified or not? What if Jesus looks back at him and goes, are you kidding me? You have no power and authority that God hasn't given you. God's in control. And he said that to the very man who allowed him to be murdered. But God, the sovereign God, had a plan. And he used that action by Pilate to save mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Evil and good rulers alike, God is in control of it all. And so we obey authority, parents, teachers, bosses, government, because we trust him. Do you obey? Do you trust your God? Let's pray to that God. Father, 
I repent of my own rebellious attitude toward you and toward often those you put in authority as a reflection of that. And Father, if there's anyone in this room today that needs to change, needs to repent, maybe of an action of disobedience toward you and, and toward the authorities in their lives, or potentially it's a heart attitude, it's a, it's a lack of honor and respect, that our words are never to tear down, always to build up. And even when we speak truth and hard words and get up in people's faces, the motivation is love. The motivation is for people to know Jesus. And may we as your followers keep central what you keep central. May we spend the majority of our time focused on preaching the name of Jesus in the way that we talk, in the way that we live, and becoming more like him. Lord, help us to trust you above all. And as a symbol of that trust, we obey the authorities that you've put into our life. And Father, we can only do this, only do this by your grace. We have one king. His name is Jesus. May we bow the knee to him and do what we've been called to do. It's in his authoritative, powerful, beautiful name that we pray. Amen.